hey, everybody, we have a great show for you today. You're going to get to meet four great startups. One of them is working in SEO using AI. Another one is aggregating and making alerts and searches for uh, resale marketplaces. You know those where people are buying used clothing and uh, it's a big trend. We also have uh, somebody who's built Superhuman for calendars. And finally, a really amazing productivity tool that helps you stay more focused. Producer Rachel has another OK Boomer segment for us today about digital nomads. But first, we're bringing back an old segment that everybody loved. Yes, that's right. It's going to be time for Guess the Fake Startup. Let's get to work. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash twist. Lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at lemon.io. Go to lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. Data IQ. AI-driven growth is not just about technology. It's about organizational transformation. Join more than 45,000 people worldwide who are driving results with DataIQ. Visit dataiku.com. Okay, everybody, it's time to guess the fake startup. I'm your host and contestant, Jason Callaghan. is with me, the three producers of This Week in Startups. Big Nick. Producer Rachel reporting, and Tom Selleck's nephew, producer Justin. Strong stash game. I, st- I actually sent uh, producer Justin a picture of me with my COVID mustache, which lasted for under five minutes. I, I, I shaved, I showed it to my wife, and she walked me back to the bathroom to take it off. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, Justin. What's your uh, major I'm from in Connecticut. College? I currently live in uh, Brooklyn. But, okay. Uh, any yeah, hobbies, to- Justin? Any hobbies you like to do there in Brooklyn? Uh, yeah, I like to make music and uh, play DJ recreationally. All right, DJing in Brooklyn. And uh, how about you, producer Rachel? Uh, where are you from? And any hobbies that you like to do? Something on the weekend? Yoga? Maybe knitting? <laughs> I got into crocheting recently. Um, so I think for hobbies, my number one would definitely have to be traveling. All right. Very one. nice. Any places, any destinations that you really covet somewhere you want to go? Number one place I've been recently was Lisbon. I went two years ago and it was one of those trips where you don't plan anything and it was just the cheapest one and ended up being one of the best trips I've ever been on. So Lisbon would definitely be number one. Okay, um, and where do you want to go in the future? Any uh, destinations on the bucket list? Never been to Asia and I've never been to Australia okay, or New Zealand. Okay. So Two great destinations. Long yeah. flights. Really long uh, fights. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and how about you, Nick? Um, what do you want? Hobbies? Yeah. What do you like to do when you got that long weekend? When you got the Monday um, off? Long weekend plans for you? I like hanging out with my friends and snowboarding. Right. Yeah. Cracking up a couple of cold brewskis and hanging out with your friends. Maybe taking <laughs> a little bit of the NFL. Okay. We've got our <laughs> game show today. Guess the fake startup. Everybody knows the rules. My three producers are going to each present me with one startup each. They will describe the startup. And using my powers of deduction, I will figure out which of the three startups is the fake startup. Two will be real, one will be fake, 
and I will figure it out. We'll go around the horn here. Uh, and just as we're going to give you three data points, the name of the startup, a one sentence description of what they do in plain English, and a quote from their website. Perfect. Okay. I'm ready. Let's go in clockwise. So that means Justin, Nick, and then ending with you, Rachel. Justin, tell us the first startup. This startup is Mamma Mia, a membership-based dating app for Italian men looking for women or men who treat them as good as their mothers do. It's also for people looking for men that need to be taken care of. A quote from their website, matches so good, they'll make your mother jealous. Mamma Mia is a site for Italians? Yes. Who want to fit into specific stereotypes, men who want to be taken care of, by women who will take care of them like their moms did, is what you're telling me. Got it. Exactly. S okay. Somebody who appreciates Italian culture. There's okay. a, about 5.5 million Italians in America. Fantastic. So, yeah. uh, didn't ask for that statistic, but interesting that you would provide it. <laughs> Nick, go ahead. Uh, the second company is also a date. All three companies are dating apps. The second one is called The Locks Club. It's a private membership-based dating app for Jewish people. Uh, they're aiming to be the Disney of dating. And a quote from their website is, this is for Jews with ridiculously high standards. Okay. The Locks the Club. Locks Club wants to be like the disney corporation and it's for jewish people who have incredibly high standards there is no way on earth that you would compare that to disney that makes no sense this is a ridiculous comparison you're saying that's what they say on their website they are aiming to be the disney of dating that's what they that's claim. what they say on their website okay that is completely nonsensical uh which means it's a real startup because only a startup founder could say something <laughs> so completely nonsensical all right so i'm doing good so far Okay, producer Rachel, tell us the third startup. Third startup. So the third startup is Short King hmm. Dating. It's a dating app for men 5'8 or shorter and to join and get access to That's the a real startup. Okay. Keep going. Oh, so keep going. do you know it? No. Or some? No. Okay. No, no. I can just tell that there's a short guy out there who has this problem and he's solving his own problem. Keep going. Tell me what the website says. His own ideal customer. <laughs> okay, to join and get access to short kings you actually have to be a short king lover and a quote from their website is tall dark and handsome is outdated and kings are in short supply don't let height get in the way of true love okay so we have three short kings mama mia and the locks club now i'm going to ask you each to repeat the line from the website justin repeat the line from the website Matches so good, it will make your mother jealous. Okay. Matches so good, it'll make your mother jealous. Nick? For Jews with ridiculously high standards. That's the line from the website? Not that yes. they want to be the Disney. Okay. No. Okay. And Rachel, go ahead. Tall, tall, dark, and handsome is outdated, and kings are in short supply. Don't let height get in the way of true love. Okay. Very easy today. For me, I'll take you through my thinking. There is a uh, issue with short men because many women, uh, if we're talking about heterosexual relationships, uh, and this is a heteronormative uh, description, uh, 
Yeah, a lot of women say they they need to date somebody uh, who's taller than them, which then if you start dipping into the five, three, four, five category, you know, you, you start getting uh, left out of, a, you know, uh, the average height of women, especially if they're wearing heels. So this is an acute issue. Uh, it has, it is the most likely real one. You would never come up with uh, the Jewish dating one for fear of offending somebody which means the fake one is mamma mia you are correct well done of course i'm correct i am an expert <laughs> on startups you cannot be jcal at this game that's good game theory though so your theory was we wouldn't come up with the jewish one because we wouldn't want to nope. offend anyone so you're saying but we you wouldn't would create that one the in Italian our mind one. correct that's smart that's how i did it we've got to yeah. level up did you guys think you were going to beat me? Did you guys really think you had a chance? I I did. I thought uh, Short King. I mean, I thought Locks Club sounded fake. Locks Club is such a terrible name. It has to be real. It's so it's good. It's good. so okay. funny. It is it's such like a dating app. It's, it, listen, if you made it up and you weren't Jewish, it could be offensive. But if you're There's Jewish like and you call it Locks Club, I mean, listen, if you called the Italian one the Pizza Club, the Pasta yeah. Club. Like that could actually be offensive if you didn't yeah. call it that. Um, but Mamma Mia, it's quite charming and sweet. Everybody loves people their mom. clamoring for a Mamma Mia in the comments. By the way, clamoring for they it. Want they want us to build that Mia. startup. They, they want, want Mamma Mia. Exist. Yeah, I think the I think the market is there. <laughs> <laughs> Just lazy Italian men. I will say, Mamma Mia. Well, <laughs> see, Nick is from an Italian family, and so I know he wrote that one. Was that I Nick's did creation? Write that one. Of I course, did write that one. Yeah. So that's another little yeah. bit of a mini tell I had, but I, I can I can walk you through how I came through it, so you can do better next time in tricking me. And this is where leveling comes in because I'm giving you the tips on how to trick me next time. Locks Club is a ridiculous name. It's a ridiculous name. So it's got to be real. And this concept of being the Disney of dating is something only a deranged founder would say. I want to be the Disney of dating, like. Only a founder could say yeah. something so ridiculous. Like, there is no <laughs> Disney of dating. Disney is a totally different company. Amusement parks, merchandise, Star Wars. It makes no sense. Movies. You definitely don't have to return to dating over and over and over again, too. <laughs> exactly. Short Kings. Clever name. Clever name. Because it's owning that you're short. And um, to Nick's point, Nick nailed it, that there is an ideal customer profile here. And I think it is an acute problem for folks. And so, you know, great job this week. I don't know my track record on all of these, but when we find our twist archivist, whatever maniac wants to dip into these 1200 <laughs> episodes of insanity as a career, some maniac will do it. Uh, they can find all the guests to fake startups. We've done them 20, 30 times in the early days because it's so funny and incredible. Everybody, guess. The fake startup of this week in startups. It's our Freaky Fridays. I know you're looking for talent. It's really hard out there. The great resignation. There's a lot of people who have quit their jobs. Well, here's the good news. You're going to get your first job posting on LinkedIn for free at linkedin.com slash twist. And you're going to pick up some of that amazing talent that is recently on the market to solve the problems that you have at your company. It's so hard to find the right candidates for your business. You know that. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it so easy to find the people you want to talk to faster and now for free. 
In just minutes, you can post your job on LinkedIn and reach the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Think about that for a second. They're almost up to a billion people on LinkedIn. You can use screening questions to filter for only the most qualified candidates. And then LinkedIn lets you quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. That's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one, delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. We love LinkedIn jobs here. And in 2022, we're going to do more hiring on the platform as our team grows. I found so many great team members on LinkedIn already. So here's the call to action. Easy peasy lemon squeezy LinkedIn jobs helps you find candidates you want to talk to faster every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit linkedin so post your job for free at linkedin.com slash twist that's linkedin.com slash twist post your job for free terms and conditions apply is they're giving you something for free okay everybody welcome back to this week in startups on episode 1338 you saw my interview with three of the founders from our accelerators last class that was launch accelerator number 23 Today, I'm going to interview the four other founders in that cohort, so you can look at and see the four other companies that are trying to find product market fit and build new companies uh, out here in startup land, get that first round of funding, maybe the second round of funding and change the world. We love to invest in companies early. What kind of companies do we look for? We look for founders who have great product jobs. Basically, they can build a product that delights a customer. And um, that product should have great design. It should have great UX and UI, user interface, user experience. And hopefully, these founders build a product that solves a problem for customers that is acute. That's a hard problem. And today, you're going to love these companies. They are very forward-looking. They have real products. And they are, in fact, delighting customers already. These uh, four founders again, came to the 23rd edition of the Launch Accelerator. If you would like information about the Launch Accelerator, you can go to launch.co, our website, not .com, .co, and you'll see information about the Accelerator. You can apply. It's just like any other Accelerator, like Y Combinator or Techstars, except that instead of just investing $100,000, we typically will invest in the companies if they find product market fit two or three more times because we have this great syndicate at thesyndicate.com which allows us to invest over and over and over again if the company is growing. So we like to double down, triple down on the winners. We take a lot of chances. We take a lot of risks. Most startups uh, don't work out. But if a founder does do a great startup and they come back uh, after failing and they do another startup, we'd love to invest in founders a second time. All of this is to say we're uh, early to companies and we love being early to companies. We've had a number of companies become worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And in one case, a billion dollar company has already come out of uh, the first uh, 10 or so editions of the launch accelerator. So we're very proud of the track record. And there's one very unique thing. It's a 16 week course. It occurs over those 16 weeks remotely now because of the pandemic, we went fully remote. That allows us to accommodate founders from around the world. And we have hundreds of people apply. We only accept seven per cohort, and those seven companies gives us the ability to not drown investors who come to see these companies with too many companies. If you've been to a demo day or watched one online, some accelerators like Y Combinator have 150 companies, 250 companies present. Very hard for a company to stand out, isn't it, when you have that many companies? In fact, I can tell you as an investor, when you have to watch those after the 10th company, 
you become bleary eyed and everything just starts melding into one startup. Uh, and you can't even remember the names of the companies. Seven's the right number. Why seven the right number? Turns out short term memory is seven plus or minus two in most human beings. That's why if you uh, were wondering how we decided on seven digit phone numbers, three plus four, that's because of they did a study on short term memory. Short term memory, seven plus or minus two. So some people can do eight or nine, other people, eh, they can do five, six, seven. We went with seven. It's also reasonable if you're going to have an accelerator. We let each one of them pitch for three minutes to a group of investors every week. They meet hundreds of investors during the accelerator. That's a big part of what we do is introduce people, uh, the founders and their brilliant ideas to tons of investors, hundreds, if not thousands. We also specialize in helping the founders really pitch their ideas crisply, cleanly, and answer questions well and learn about the fundraising process. We also help them with their products and growth and other topics. But generally speaking, we only accept people who are good at product. So we don't need to teach them all that much about product. What we do need to really support them in raising that first round of funding, which is the hardest. And if you think about it, what we're doing is we're, we're helping anoint these companies and other downstream investors from us who like to write bigger checks, uh, Series A, Series B, We'll look at my track record as an investor and say, you know, if Jason invested, maybe I'll take the meeting. If I invested, it doesn't mean they're going to blindly invest in the company. That does happen with angels sometimes. Uh, they will blindly follow an investment I've done. But more often than not, uh, the best I can do is give founders some great advice, introduce them to as many people as possible, and just get them a meeting. And then it's up to them to close. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, but we work hard. Uh, and we really enjoy, I can tell you personally, I really enjoy working with founders when they're under five or 10 people in their company and they're, they're just figuring everything out. So first up on the program today is David Park. He has a company called Jenny, J-E-N-N-I, AI. Welcome to the program, David. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. <laughs> okay, so uh, you launched uh, Jenny AI in October 2020. Tell us in a sentence or two what you built and why. Basically, help small and medium-sized businesses uh, do SEO. SEO is really difficult. It's very time-consuming. Uh, there are agencies out there that charge monthly retainers of two thousand and ten thousand dollars a month, and I think that the world's a better place when small and medium-sized businesses can actually do these things in-house. And uh, we want to make one platform where we could do that on one place. Why is SEO so important to small and medium-sized businesses? Explain what SEO is at its core. Sure. Yeah, SEO is basically uh, free <laughs> organic traffic to your site. Um, if you're an expert in your field, you should be able to create articles that people want to read. And then you put those articles on Google, and then people will find them and then hopefully convert into users or learn more about your cause and just generally a low cost way to get more people visiting your product. Fantastic. Everybody who's in marketing, who's built a website, generally knows that search engine optimization is a way to get free traffic. People type something into Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo. And where you rank is critically important and understanding what content to write and what keywords to use to get those searches is uh, critically important. How does your solution work? And maybe we could do a little demo here. Yeah, I'd love to go through a demo. So first, you put in the title of your article here. Just describe your content. Jenny then does the research for you, gives you a few generated titles. Let's go with the ultimate guide to search engines. Jenny now knows the direction that you want to go. She'll give you the outline. I like that introduction. Let's generate that. 
Uh, if I like what she spit out, I can just keep going down the article. It's not just about the money. I don't like that heading. Let's change this to a list. One, content is king. So Jenny now is a collaborator on my document. She's going to change everything below that heading as well. Uh, she sees that I want a list instead of just headings uh, like before. And as I go down the, uh, the document uh, methodically in this way, I'm able to write an article in minutes, not weeks. And uh, you keep the writer in the driver's seat and you end up with a high quality article that'll hopefully do well on Google. Okay, so behind the scenes, as I'm writing, uh, mm -hmm. let's say this was um, how to how to pick an SUV. I start by saying, "Hey, I want to. I'm a I'm a car dealer, and I want to help people pick an SUV." And I write how to pick an SUV. Mm -hmm. Somehow, you're taking that first sentence I'm doing. Then I put step one: How many uh, seats do you need? Is the first thing you have to answer, or what is your budget? As I write that, what is happening on the back end? Because for people who are not watching this live, you type a sentence, and then all of a sudden, words start filling in. Keywords, sentences. Yeah. How is it getting those? Is it doing Google searches? Is it using AI? Is it using GPT-3? What, what is the process of pulling all this information in and basically starting you on second base with a bunch of ideas? Yeah, great question. Basically, everything that we do is centered around things that are currently doing well on Google, the articles that are currently doing well. So if you make um, your outline, say step one, uh, the seats in an SUV, Jenny then actually goes back to what's doing well on Google in the same way a human would do when they're researching and trying to write a great article. They'll say, oh, when people talk about seats in an SUV, usually they then talk about the interior, what type of interior is in the car. So then she'll try to give you that as step two to talk about next. Um, we do use GPT-3. We have our own in-house models. We've built our own scraping system. Uh, we have five to six of our own in-house AI models that uh, help with uh, creating the topics that uh, all these articles are talking about on Google, and then actually creating uh, questions which you should be talking about, maybe some topics that aren't being discussed that maybe should be discussed. Uh, these sorts of things help, as you said, get writers on second base rather than first base, and then put them in a position to create great high-quality content, which ultimately is what Google wants and what the user wants and what searchers want, what the website uh, owners want as well. When you're growing your startup fast, and I hope you are, trying to hire engineers can slow you down like nothing else. Well, there's some good news. Lemon.io will find you a perfect candidate in 48 hours. I thought I was going to say 48 days because that's probably on average what it takes. No, 48 hours. So what is Lemon.io, you ask me? Well, I'm going to tell you. They're a marketplace of engineers from Europe. Lemon.io is a great solution if you are a technical co-founder and you need to delegate tasks or... You have a project that needs specific technology and you don't have that skill on your team. And maybe you can learn from this person, right? Or you're growing rapidly and you need to add developers quickly. Well, they're going to match you with a candidate within 48 hours. And if it doesn't work out, well, they'll replace the developer right away. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. They test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. If you can use a full-time or part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to lemon.io slash twist lemon.io slash twist that's it and you'll receive a 15 percent discount for the first four weeks of work with your new developer who's gonna crush it for you get in there everybody lemon.io slash twist so to be clear you're not writing the full article for people and then spamming the internet with random words i'm starting to write something about this suv concept and then it knows since i said how many seats because that was my idea Hey, maybe the interior matters. Maybe the layout of the seats matter. Okay, two captain's chairs, two captain chairs, third row. Do you need the third row? How much storage space do you need? 
Oh, and by the way, the next question people tend to ask is price. Oh, and by the way, used versus new. Oh, by the way, yeah. what weather conditions are you going to drive it in? Do you, what size engine do you need? All of this and maybe alternatives to an SUV. Maybe there's crossovers or hybrids. So you're able to just for me starting out, give me ideas and things that are adjacent to it that I might not have thought about. Correct? Yeah. And that's the funny part is the tech, this GPT-3, it's almost too sexy. It's almost too, it's, it, you're so tempted to just generate an entire article. You just want to click and have the AI write everything for you. That's kind of where we uh, are perpendicular to our competitors, where we actually purposefully slow our writers down. We want to give them context. We want to give them data. As you write, if you're writing about an SUV and you write about how many seats, Jenny will show you on the side of the research tab, hey, here's what your competitor is saying on how many seats uh, you know, this brand of SUV has. Hey, uh, here's maybe uh, what some users are saying on Reddit about how many seats are the best. And it allows writers to uh, you know, <laughs> literally be in the driver's seat you know, in this example uh, as they're writing uh, the article versus just minimizing inputs uh, and maximizing outputs of clicking a button, see how many words you can get out, uh, how, how many words you can get GPT-3 to spit out. So yeah, I'd say and, that's pretty accurate. And everybody who has ever built a website has got an email from an SEO consulting firm that asks you to sign a two-year contract that you can't get out of for two to $10,000, yeah. $25 to $100,000 a year. They promise you're going to rank. How much do you yeah. charge for this solution? Because what they're doing essentially is looking at the top results, looking at your competitors, mm -hmm. and maybe doing this in a manual fashion. So instead of spending two to 10K a month, what do you charge for this service? Yeah, so we just charge a flat $100 a month that comes with up to 30 documents um, and unlimited generations within each document. So um, wow. you can so explore- So $3 a document, basically. It's, uh, it's pretty cheap. And, you know, I, I mean, we're like you said, we're early stage. Maybe one document, you'll find that you have a little bit of trouble with the AI or maybe you have a little bit of trouble writing it. And you can always just use 29 other documents because uh, you only really need to put out four to 10 blog posts a month. I mean, that's, that's pushing it. That's, that's a lot yeah. of SEO. One a week is a good, good cadence. One, yeah, a, one a week yeah. is a great. And so, yeah, we, we definitely think that um, we put our customers in a position where um, they're never worrying about, oh, am I going to run out of documents this month? Oh, I'm scared to click the generate button in this document, you know, go wild and hopefully create content that adds value in the world versus just AI generated garbage. <laughs> so it's a, a really uh, cutting edge idea. That's why I liked it. And I thought this is a very affordable tool. Can't imagine people with websites who actually have a business not wanting to spend $1,200 a year on this, because if you do hire an SEO consultant, not only are they going to charge you that two to $10,000 a month, on top of that, they're going to charge you 500 to to $1,000 per article to write it. Yeah, uh, or you're going to have to write it yourself, and they'll edit it for you or something to that effect. How are right. you doing in terms of traction? Are, do you have any customers on the product paying yet? And uh, what's the growth strategy here? Yeah, so traction has been pretty great. We've grown continuously month over month for the last five months, around at least 8% growth each month. Um, I mean, it's, it's not like crazy scaling unicorn type growth. But uh, it, uh, we've also been fundraising at the same time, which is not very fun um, and yeah. does take Painful. a bit of my time. Yes. And so I, I do most of the, I'm pretty much the only person on the business side as of right now. So uh, that's the reason why, I mean, it, weirds, it feels weird to say from my own mouth, but I'm so sure that we could have ballooned that growth much more had I, could I, could I have allocated all that fundraising time, but you it's know, fundraising is doing well. So <laughs> it's a, it's a delicate process when you're at this stage of a company, you're under-resourced, 
and you need to show growth exactly. in order to get investment. Yeah. But it, getting investment is a full-time job. So you're balancing those two things. Always a struggle. There's only so many hours in a week. Right. And if you're doing this, you got to be working six or seven days a week. You're really doing two jobs concurrently, getting those new customers, delighting them and building the product while, of course, raising money. Really excited about your future. Congratulations on the progress. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Next up on our program is Samuel Spitz. He is with Wearloom. And Wearloom also went to the launch accelerator number 23. We just picked our seven companies for the fall cohort. And uh, we'll do six, seven cohorts next year, I'm sure. And so uh, welcome to the program, Samuel. Thanks, Jason. Super excited to be here. So tell everybody what you're building and why it's important. Absolutely. So at Wearloom, we're building the demand layer for secondhand shopping. Secondhand shoppers come to us to find the best listings from different secondhand sites like Poshmark, Depop, and eBay. Uh, what we're doing is really important because secondhand is a massively growing industry, growing about 40% a year within the fashion vertical. But right now, it's incredibly fragmented. And the buyer experience is super broken, much harder than shopping retail. And so our goal is to make shopping secondhand just as frictionless as shopping new, while still being less expensive and more sustainable. Fantastic. And from what I understand, uh, people buying secondhand clothes um, are not just doing that because uh, it's a great way to save money and to get premium products at a discounted price. They're also doing it because they really do care about the environment. And they don't want to see clothes going into uh, landfills. Am I, am I correct in that way? Absolutely. The fashion industry is the second largest polluter on the planet. Uh, and one of the best ways to be more responsible with your consumption of fashion is to shop secondhand. Uh, it's, a, it's even for the most sustainable uh, fashion companies, producing a new good is always going to produce more waste than getting something that already exists in the world. And there's so much stuff that just fills up people's closets, never getting used. So there's a lot of opportunity here. And there are plenty of sites that do this. There's eBay. There's the one Poshmark you mentioned. What's the other big one? There's Depop. There's The Real Real, Vestiaire Collective, Rebag. The list goes on and on. There's 10 plus billion dollar companies just within fashion. Wow. I didn't realize that. So there's 10 plus billion dollar companies doing this uh, resale of... Um, and, and there's so many different SKUs and items that if you're looking for a certain brand of dress or shoe... It might not be on one, it might be on one of the 10. So you're now aggregating these databases together, which is really helpful for those sites. They must love the fact that you're creating this meta search engine, correct? Absolutely. That's why we're already partnered with several of them. Fantastic. Can you give us a little demo and, and take us behind the scenes of, of how this actually works for consumers? Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, we're on wearloom.com right now, our website. So what you need to do is go to this website and then just click on the sign up button. That takes you to a form where you can enter all the items that you're looking for. So you give us a search term. In this case, we're looking for a St. Laurent t-shirt, uh, your category. So this is a, is a shirt, uh, your size. For me, this is a larger and extra large. The brand is St. Laurent. Uh, and then I'm going to be looking under $200 in the men's section. Uh, so then you could add additional items. But here, we're just going to stick with this one. Uh, we're going to go to the next page, enter our name and email, uh, and then click submit. And so now we're in one of my actual alerts that I receive from Wearloom Daily that has the best listings for my searches. Here, we're clicking on a St. Laurent t-shirt uh, with a skull print graphic. This is actually a shirt that I actually own. Uh, and here we're on Depop. And so if I was interested in purchasing this item, I could just click buy now, use my existing Depop account uh, and e seamlessly check out. And now I've saved hours per week and what it would take to search across Depop, eBay, Poshmark, and several other sites on my own and probably gotten a better deal because I've gotten the best listings from these different sites. 
And what's critically important for people to know here is it's not a one-time search. Because you're putting your email address in, you're setting this as an alert. Because, hey, let's face it, you know, those pair of Yeezys or that Yves Saint Laurent shirt or, you know, that uh, Isaiye blazer that I really like and I covet, you know, it, there may not be one right now in my size. But this is going to week after week give you updates on your favorite brand and what's available, which in a way lets you get to it before other people. Is that correct? This lets me snipe it before other people get to Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So the thing about secondhand uh, is that the best listings tend to sell pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. so what I actually did, this whole product came out of my consumer experience as an avid secondhand shopper. Before Wearloom, I was spending hours per week doing rote searching on all these sites because you have to do that every day if you want to get the good deals. So we basically automate that search process for you and save you a ton of time in the process, and you'll probably end up getting a better price too. Now, how do you make money doing this? Does a customer pay? Do you get affiliate fees? Do you get both? So absolutely no fee for the customer. You pay uh, exactly what you'd pay by going to any of these sites directly. We partner with different resale sites. Currently, our partners include eBay is is one of the ones that uh, is our biggest partner to date. Um, And we take a percentage of every sale. And so the way we like to think about it is we're sort of uh, disintermediating the supply from the demand in the market. Uh, and taking a percentage of the the take rate for feeding back buyers the best possible buying platform. The potential for positive change with AI is huge, but seeing that value is hard. AI-driven growth is about organizational transformation, not just technology. And many businesses struggle with bringing AI initiatives to fruition. That's where DataIQ comes in. DataIQ is the platform for everyday AI systemizing the use of data for exceptional business results. At its core, DataIQ allows companies to leverage one central solution to design, deploy, and manage AI and analytics applications. And it's accessible for everyone, whether technical or if you're on the business side. DataIQ also facilitates using pre-built components and automation wherever possible to streamline work processes as well as consistent management and governance across teams and projects to create transparent, repeatable, and scalable AI and analytics programs. Visit DataIQ to learn more. That's D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com to learn more. And one of the things that attracted us to your product was the incredible metrics 10,000 users already receiving alerts, I think daily, 50% of your users or more are active on the site weekly, and your retention is well above 90%. Am I correct? Those are some of the old statistics I remember from your pitches. Uh, You have obviously millions of listings being sent every month. Uh, Am I directionally correct on these engagement statistics? Yeah, absolutely. And what's really exciting is all this traction has come pretty much through organic channels. Uh, we've spent, you know, uh, about $1,000 on paid marketing to date, 99% of those users are organic. And a lot of them are actually from user led organic referrals. And so actually, from our very first month, this is one of the things I remember talking uh, to Presh about in our first meeting, uh, getting interviewed with Accelerator is from our very first month, we saw that users were coming to the most bare bones version of our product, having success finding their items with it, and then actually sharing it with others personally or on social media. Uh, and so I think having a really strong finger on the pulse of our consumers, which came out of me building for for myself as a user, uh, has helped us get to the traction that we've seen today. Do the sites that pay you affiliate fees pay you for somebody visiting the site, a click to the site, for opening an account, or for closing a sale, or some combination of that? It's all based on sales for now. Got it. So 
you know, you get a lot of people creating the alerts, but you only get paid when they actually make a sale or people actually uh, winding up making a sale. I could understand people making the searches and, you know, doing the window shopping as it were. Um, but are you actually converting? Yeah, we are. Our conversion rates are quite high, several times higher than e-commerce benchmarks. We're not publicly talking about GMV or revenue, but both are uh, at a pretty exciting place for where we are with the product uh, and headed in the right direction. We introduced you to hundreds of investors during this process, but knowing what I know, um, a lot of investors are not aware of this category, how vibrant it is. And it, let's face it, wouldn't appeal to rich venture capitalists who have unlimited budgets to buy brand new fashion. They're not part of the generation that cares about this necessarily. What was the reception like for a product that maybe didn't have appeal to a venture capitalist personally? And how do you get them over the hump in terms of understanding this? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so I'd say it varies a lot. And so we had one, uh, one meeting where we had a team of venture capitalists come in. I won't say from what firm, but uh, and one of them actually said in the meeting, I'm a current user of this product. And this was back when we have like half as many wow. users. Um, and so we've had examples like that where the, the VC just coincidentally happens to be a big resale shopper. Obviously, that makes driving the value home a lot easier. But certainly, like like you talked about, there's a lot of other cases where uh, not only might the uh, investor not be a consumer of this market, but they might not even be aware of the size of this market. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd say with those sorts of investors, I think what we really come back to is a couple a couple key things. One is the growth of the market. The fact that it's growing 40% a year while already being a $15 billion market, just online resale fashion alone. I mean, that's pretty incredible. The, the growth potential for the market. So when we look at secondhand more broadly, which after fashion, we plan to go to other uh, other verticals. Uh, Mercari is estimated that in the United States alone, secondhand commerce will be a 350 billion plus market by the end of the decade. And with the way we're building this company, our idea is that we can be the central buyer layer for all of that. And so I'd say I drive home those two points combined with just the the friction points from the buyer experience, that fragmentation, uh, the the friction that comes with the search process because of all the data problems in secondhand, and then going back to the traction that we've seen and executing on those problems today. So that's what I start with. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but we actually did end up getting a, a lot of good investor interest over the course of the cohort and, and afterwards. Fantastic. And of course, if you build this technology, if people were trading watches or they were trading electronics and there was a secondary market for those other types of items, just like there are, there is a secondhand market for cars, uh, it only makes sense that you would be able to quickly uh, aggregate that data and build these alerts for those other categories. So even if they don't believe in this vertical, they might very much believe in the watch one or some other collectibles or things that are sold secondhand is what I'm reading into that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And just also understanding that the the size of the opportunity is a lot bigger when you look at all of secondhand versus just the fashion vertical. Yeah, absolutely. All right, listen, continued success. And uh, of course, let us know how we can support you and, and we're rooting for you and we're absolutely delighted to be in business with you. Thanks so much, Jason. All right, fantastic. We're moving at a nice pace here. Uh, and this is very similar to what we do in the accelerator. Each company gets about 10 minutes, three minutes to pitch or so. Uh, and we're not doing the full pitches here. And then six, seven minutes to answer questions from investors. We videotape everything. We track all the questions the founders get asked. And we actually workshop with them. Why are the investors asking these questions over and over again? In this case, they might be asking the question over and over again about the TAM, the total addressable market. So then we learn, hey, investors don't understand this market. 
we need to spend a little bit more time in the presentation educating them on the market. In some other cases, they understand the market implicitly, but they don't buy that consumers need that product. So maybe you need more consumer stories to engage those investors and prove to them through rich, detailed examples of consumers, real consumers being delighted, spending money, uh, and, and being just absolutely enamored with the product. So that's part of the science that we do at our accelerator, something I pioneered uh, with Jackie, uh, who runs the accelerator with me is taking a scientific approach to analyzing what are the investors thinking about when they assess a company and what can we learn from that, right? Because investors do have great signaling. In some cases, they also may be unaware of an opportunity. And we try to take our feelings about that, a little bit artistic (laughs) with the science of it and do a little bit of alchemy. Okay, next up on the program is Track. And you can go see Track at thetrackapp.com and the founder's name is Sudama Bhatia. Sudama, I, did I pronounce it perfectly or did I get it wrong? Yeah, perfect. Oh, it's so weird. I, for some reason, uh, I'm assuming your name is Indian. Yes, it is. I get Indian names right and I can get other names completely wrong. And from what I understand, Indian names are some of the hardest to pronounce. So I'm that is true. super, super uh, proud of myself that I got that right with my dile- dyslexia. So uh, when I saw your app, uh, I said, wow, this uh, reminds me a bit of Superhuman. And in fact, uh, you described it to me as Superhuman for calendars. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you're building and why? Awesome. By the way, great to see you again, Jason. So yeah. thanks so much for having us. And it's my uh, pleasure. And so we're building track. We're trying to build the fastest and most elegant calendar experience out there. Uh, so you can think of Google Calendar, Calendly, and, and Doodle kind of built into a Superhuman kind of an experience. And the background on this is that even before track, like we were building this mobile app for scheduling phone calls. It was called check-in call because I was frustrated by the kiosk of unscheduled phone calls in India. And we realized that that was one of the problems, you know, around calendars and scheduling. But it just, you know, after talking to a lot of people and of, you know, our own sort of internal frustrations around Google Calendar started bubbling up. So we started like connecting the dots and seeing things like, uh, you know, in Google Calendar, for example, it's pretty cluttered, unintuitive, and kind of slows you down. The UI and UX also is not designed uh, for people who live by the calendar, essentially. So we felt like the calendars are not designed for the people who live by them. And people are using that in conjunction with Calendly, which was a bit impersonal. And for people who wanted to optimize their time and had several events a week, it was not the best solutions. Uh, I had also worked at Goldman Sachs in New York where I saw like traders use the Bloomberg keyboard, Quants use Excel shortcuts, and then Superhuman came along and and all of these dots started to connect for us. So that's how early last Mm. year we started working on, you know, a more efficient solution. Uh, And I personally, one of the things that I really, really disliked about calendars was, you know, all the dragging and then clicking and then selecting and then typing. And you just just do this endlessly. Uh, You know, that's one of the things and can't manage multiple accounts, like working across time zones, all of these things are very painful and they just add up, right? So that's where we decided that we had the thinking and the building blocks for it and we should go tackle this problem. So making the quickest, most elegant power user version of calendars. Let's do a quick demo here. Remember, most people are listening, so describe what they're seeing. Awesome. So this is Sehej, who's one of our earliest users trying to schedule a call with Anjana in India. So he opens up a widget where he can enter the time zone. And then on this calendar view, 
he has an input where he can type in natural language, the duration of a call, the type of the call, and the days of the week he's available and the times. And then he shifts without having to switch out of the keyboard. He types Anjana's information so that she doesn't need to take the effort. And then track creates a message which is customized and personalized for her so that when Anjana opens the link, she can match with the calendar or browse a few slots and pick one and then book the call in two clicks. So it's really efficient, very fast for all of these workflows, basically. And when you did that, for people who are not watching, you just said, hey, 30-minute meeting with this email address on these days in this window. It presents the landing page for that person to pick from one of those options and then automatically inserts it. You never had to touch the mouse. As I tell anybody, when you touch that trackpad or a mouse, you've just failed the assignment. The assignment is to be able to do that really quick. Just like in Superhuman, you never touch your mouse and you become bionic. When you're scheduling like this, you're probably doing it in one third to one tenth of the time is if you were sending an email, cut and pasting times, and you're just putting together, I guess, Calendarly and Noodle and some of those other programs allow you to do that. Hey, here's my open schedule. Here's your open schedule. Pick a date, correct? And that's just built in here. Exactly. And with the whole keyboard first experience, as you talked about, right? Like, we just think of it as I shouldn't have to, you know, think too much. I just say, okay, this is what I'm trying to do. This is my command. You just share some options, create the message for me. All I need to do is just, you know, paste it somewhere. Uh, and those are multiple steps, which otherwise take a lot of time and then a lot of clicking around. So we paid a lot of attention to that experience, basically. And so, of course, the objection you're going to get from investors is, well, what if Google does this? Or what if Microsoft does this? Or is it really that much better? When you get those kind of obvious objections, how do you overcome them? That's a great question. So in terms of the bigger players, I feel like I think there's already a lot of like inefficiency that they've built in. And designing a keyboard-first experience like this is incredibly hard. Uh, because you have to pay a lot of attention de to details to like literally every single drop down and interaction. Uh, and, and then they're building for the masses, right? So they can't really change the experience for everyone. This is designed for people who want to really optimize and use the calendar a lot. Uh, and so that's one of the aspects. And in terms of like, you know, will, is this really much better? It's like anyone who's really used the calendar extensively understands how deep the product is and how many pain points are there for example as i mentioned like you know working with time zones multiple accounts and we you know even now get like tons of requests from my users around things like oh can i use you know gmail and out my outlook account together now that's not something that either gmail alone can do or outlook alone can do in that sense so those are gaps already you know that exist that we can capitalize on as well so you know those are very and much uh, how do you make money with this product Great. So currently we're just offering a two-week trial and then it's a $10 a month, uh, you know, for a monthly subscription and an annual subscription at $100 a month. And by Q2 next year, we're planning to open $100 up a year. Price. I think you mean $100, $100 a year. year. Sorry. Yeah. $100 a month, $100 a year, you get that little $20 exactly. discount. And if, uh, do, do you have a multiplayer version here where if I have an organization of 10 or 20 people in my department, or is that something you're to build next? Yeah. So... The good thing here is that currently in single player mode, you can already do things like scheduling time with your teammates, which is a big problem. Uh, and we've optimized for that. But yeah, in the near future, we'll also be building a multiplayer version in that sense, which makes things much easier. And of course, when we invest for people who are listening, 
uh, we always look at a product and one of the lenses I look through is, hey, if the founder can build something this elegant, this beautiful, this high functioning, the founder doesn't, um, and it's just advice for angel investors and early stage investors, it's not like suddenly a great founder who's incredible at building an elegant product is going to run out of ideas or not have other challenges they find. Of course, multiplayer mode is going to become even more dynamic and there you can just keep building into adjacencies or make the product deeper and richer. So there's always more innovation left to do. That's why I always like to bet on founders who build great products relentlessly and have great product cadence. They're releasing features on what product cadence every week, every two weeks. How often does your team add, you know, uh, a, a new uh, function to the product? What's your goal in that regard? Our typical cadence is once, you know, once a week at least. But oftentimes we're getting so many requests from users that we will ship out a version like if something is important and they, you know, we feel like it could really create value. Uh, you know, we just ship it, you know, within the week as well. So it could be like sometimes two, three times a week if we feel that that can create value for everyone. Um, as an example, recently, uh, you know, Chris was also a launch founder, uh, you know, requested this feature to auto join calls. So he doesn't have to even click. Uh, you know, just join the next call automatically. That way you don't miss oh, calls. Oh, that's as a well. great feature. So I have a, a Zoom call coming up and it just automatically loads Zoom at one o'clock. Exactly. It's me in the waiting room. Oh yeah. my God, that's such a genius feature. You've demonstrated perfectly for me my point about great product teams that have great product cadence can come up with an infinite number of uh, features if they just obsess over their customers. How do you obsess over your customers? How do you get that feedback from customers? How do you extract from customers great ideas like auto launching the Zoom if they're that crazy and they want to do something like that? Exactly. So actually, this came out, uh, you know, I was just chatting with uh, with, with Chris on, on Slack, thanks to the, the launch community. But, you know, he put it out there and then he put a post on LinkedIn as well. And, you know, that just made us more aware of it. And then we just built it really quickly. But we also built a community of close like, you know, users that we take constant feedback from and it's like literally every day we have multiple requests. So that's a great way for us to, you know, sort of iterate and then choose between our own vision and the things that people are requesting for. Fantastic. Just people are very apt to send you an email or to chat with you in a chat room if you give them the green light and you encourage them to do that. Hey, is there anything we can do better? Any features you want? Just email us. Just fill in this chat room. So continued success. Uh, and it's great to be in business with you. I'm so proud of the progress you're making. Thanks so much, Jason. Great to be here. All right. So there you have it, folks. They're getting tons of feature requests. Revenue is still very early. Uh, but you got those small teams really interested in that multiplayer mode. So what I like to do is just suspend my uh, disbelief and always have that faith that the founder will keep iterating and have that great product velocity. When you see that as an investor, you're going to um, you're going to have a good chance of success. That's what I always feel. Uh, at the very least, the product's not going to be stagnant. And you love those teams that have those founder chops, uh, which is actually uh, a great segue into our next founder. Her company is called Llama Life. You can visit them at llamalife.co. Llamalife.co launched in August of 2020. And they're in the category that I love, which is productivity, because I want everybody on my team to be productive. I want to be productive. So, Marie Ning, welcome to the program. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. And uh, you joined us uh, at the 
accelerator from outside of the United States, correct? Yeah, I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. One of um, one of my favorite countries. I can't wait for this pandemic to end so I can get back down under and visit uh, my friends in Sydney and Melbourne and just uh, enjoy your amazing country. Does that mean you were up at three in the morning to pitch to investors? <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what time that you wound up having to get up. Yeah, and I apologize, yeah, yeah. but no, that's all good. Um, yeah, it was pretty early, but you know that's that's one of the advantages of having it remote, right? So just the fact that I could participate was amazing. Um, but yes, it was it was very early for me, but I I just got myself into a routine, you know, so I got up early, but I also went to bed early. So in the end, I was still getting, you know, seven, eight hours sleep, which is really mm. important. As a founder, you need to, um, it needs to be sustainable the way you're working. And it actually turned out to be quite a good routine for me. And uh, yeah, it worked out Fantastic. fine. Yeah, uh, and, and you've done well in your fundraising. Uh, we're going to be participating and helping you close out the round, I understand, from my team. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about the product. You are building a time-based productivity tool. I think the best way for us to explain this is to just show it. So why don't you go ahead and give us a quick demo? Yeah, cool. So um, Llama Life is a web-based productivity app. And uh, for those that are listening online, what we're looking at is Kind of like a task manager view, which has a timer on the top. And what you do is you type in the task that you want to do and you decide how much time you want to spend on it. And when you um, start the task, it starts a countdown timer, which effectively puts a, a cap on it, like a time box on it, which encourages focus. So Llama Life is all about helping you increase your focus and flow to help you get through the day. There's also soundscapes that you can play in the background, so beach sounds or sa uh, storm or forest sounds. And there's also a mini report and preset lists that you can create for routine tasks that you have every day. So if I had a routine task of, hey, I like to talk to my uh, product manager, I like to check in with the sales team, I like to check these metrics in Google Analytics, uh, mm -hmm. then I like to write a blog post. And of course, uh, I then always have my staff meeting or huddle, I could have my daily morning routine. And every morning I pop it in there and I get my countdown clock, it keeps me on task. And if I need to add five minutes or take off five minutes, I can do that by just hitting a quick button. This yep. reminded me of something I had seen like a physical product I was pitched on, or some system, there's the GSD system getting stuff done. There was this like tomato timer system where you mm. used a little egg timer. Yep. This is in that same zone, correct? Yeah, it's in the same realm. So the, the tomato timer that you're talking about is the Pomodoro technique where Pomodoro, people typically yeah. set, you know, a 25 minute focus session followed by a five minute break. And Llama Life plays on a similar concept, except it gives people a lot more flexibility. So instead of being restricted to 25 minutes, you might want to start with a five minute task or a 10 minute task. And Often starting is the hardest part. So mm. if we can get ourselves going and get into flow with a very short task, usually that helps to you know continue on to a larger task. And like you said, you can add five minutes or take away time as well, um, depending on how you're feeling. And I think the biggest difference with Llama Life is the whole product is designed to make you feel good about completing a task. So there's a lot of animations, there's confetti. Um, it's meant to be a fun way to complete things, you know, it, and also it's kind of playing on this timer mechanism, which increases your focus at, at any given time. 
and it's it's really great because it gives you some level of structure and some kind of mm-hmm. accomplishment because sometimes we've all had this experience we come to work we know there's a ton to do we go into our email box and we get lost for hours we're surfing the web we check our facebook we check twitter and all of a sudden the day's gone and we're like what did we actually get done but yeah, if you structure yeah. it uh with llama life you actually have a track record of what you've done i'm assuming it saves this audit log of what you've done yeah. so if you were working on a team if you had a manager or something you could actually export and say hey by the way here's what i got done today uh, anything mm-hmm. else i could be helpful with are people using it in that way to kind of take credit if they're in an organization for what they're getting done and do reporting yeah, so there is there is a reporting um, reporting page, so you can see how much time you have assigned to a task, and then how much time you actually spent it spent on it in mm. real life. And some of the feedback that I've got so far is that you know after completing just a couple of tasks, people are actually quite surprised at the amount of time things take. Right, mm. so Llama Life is all about helping you be more effective with your time. It's not necessarily the amount of time that you're working in a day. You don't necessarily have to do crazy kind of, you know, 10, 14 hour days. Um, it is all about helping you make the most of the time that you have. So be more effective with it. Um, so people are using it in that way to kind of check themselves to see what they've accomplished in any given day. Um, it is a consumer. Uh, SaaS product at the moment. So right now we're just selling to individuals. That said, uh, last week we had a really good week. So it was the first time I actually sold 10 um, licenses of the product in one go. Oh, wow. Yeah. To one company so that want, to, somebody got addicted to it and said, I want my whole team on it? To one person. Yeah. To one person. Wow. So um, still deciding how they're going to use that. But they, you know, they really bought into what the product's trying to achieve, what the brand is, the community around the product, and said they'd like to buy 10, 10 licenses in one hit. So that was um, that gave me a lot of confidence that you know we can start selling to small teams and eventually go into enterprise. Um, but yeah, it was just a really great moment. You know, kind of those little steps along the way that give you give you confidence yeah. to get to the next. We could bit. definitely throw some confetti in the air for that ten <laughs> sale at once. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, okay. So then this leads to the the manager who wants mm-hmm. to have a productive team, which is a yep. reasonable thing. But then there are some people who don't like to be micromanaged. They don't want people looking at a test. They want to be judged on their mm-hmm. holistic view of work. But we have remote work now. Yep. And it's very hard for people with remote work to know who's doing what. And then we all have this experience where somebody is just absolutely kicking butt knocking out task after task after task and then there's somebody getting paid more money who's not going through task after task how do how do you plan on when you do have multiplayer mode mm-hmm. when you do have an enterprise version and um, you clearly have demand for it because people are buying it even though you haven't built it yet so yeah have you started thinking about how to architect that so that it's not considered oppressive or micromanaging but maybe creates a pool of tasks that need to get done and i as the manager say hey i need somebody to write this press release i think it's a 90 minute job mm-hmm. i need somebody to talk to this customer and do a user interview i think that's a 45 minute job i need somebody to talk to this vendor and negotiate a lower price and i could put a pool of tasks mm-hmm. into one place which developers do right developers have con on boards or you know uh stories and they just say hey next person take the next item so developers are pretty used to this but i think the rest of us maybe aren't so 
Tell me how you're thinking about that functionality and if maybe I'm projecting here and this doesn't actually exist or if this actually is a real concern. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you raise a really good point. It's a very, very fine balance when you take a consumer product and start putting it into enterprise. So you mentioned the fact that, you know, there's in an organization, um, the people using the product no, don't necessarily want to be micromanaged, but at the same time, the managers want to know that their team is making the most effective use of their time. So this is something I am spending a lot of time thinking about because the nature of Llama Life as a product and as a brand is that it's very fun and easygoing to use. And I want to make sure that when we start transitioning into small teams and to enterprise that we don't lose that um, that attractiveness of it, right? People are using it because they, they like the fact that it's not overwhelming. It makes them feel calm and focused while they're using the product. So it's almost completely like contradictory to having a manager have this kind of godlike view on what everybody's doing. So I am spending a lot of time thinking about that. At the moment, the plan is to go bottom up into enterprise. So ensure that it is going through employees that really want to use the product and they're bringing it to their manager in order to sell it into an organization. Um, the plan at the moment is to be able to do multiplayer mode, but have that in such a way that people are still working on their own tasks, right? But they're able to share a focus session with another team, uh. another individual, right? So it's less about going, you're doing that task and you're doing that task, right? The team can still have their own overall goals, but it's more about saying, okay, let's create a focus session together. Maybe it's one hour wow. and we're each going to work on our different tasks, but we're going to work like we're, we're almost like we're in the same room, right? Maybe I can see you on the screen. You can see me um, in a thumbnail view. So it's not too intrusive but we're working on our own task. And the way I think about that is, you know, if you're in a co-working space and you're in like a communal area, there's lots of people working on their own businesses and, and their own tasks, but you're feeding off the energy in the room, right? You're feeding off the fact that everybody's focused, everybody's in the same mindset of trying to get work done and we've dedicated one hour and we're going to bash it out and we're going to figure out what everyone love else, else is doing. Yeah, so it's more about social accountability than micromanaging specific tasks. And for people who are angel investors invest in listening, one of the things you'll experience uh, when you're talking to founders is they have perspective. And Maria, you have a perspective on this. And you have a point of view, which is this isn't about being oppressive. This is about being productive and having mm -hmm. joy and, and having that great sense of accomplishment. And so I love that you have this perspective of Hey, this isn't about being oppressive and having a punch list. This is about us banging it out and winning together. And I, I just love this idea of us focusing together. And you've got the right metaphor for the right time, which is, hey, we maybe we can't all be in the same room and now distributed teams are becoming a thing. So yeah, maybe there's a postage size stamp or we use something like a Slack huddle or the equivalent of a clubhouse room mm -hmm. where we have audio going on. And we say, you know what? We're doing a barn raising today. We're going to fix our website and get our marketing materials done for this event we're hosting. And here's all the tasks. And you could see people on this combined Llama Life board. And, you know, okay, I, I'm going to go proof the website. I'm going to write the press release. You're going to compose the tweets. I'm going to make the Canva uh, invitation. 
you're going to make the Eventbrite invitation, whatever it is, I'm going to create a, a list of 20 targets for speakers, you're going to create the list of 20 targets for sponsors, I'm going to do the work on evaluating locations for us to host this event, I'm just picking event hosting as but one complex thing that needs to be orchestrated. And because it's all happening together, I just love this idea of we all get to see the confetti. <laughs> and maybe we could even click on, you know, you pick the right venue, I did the target list of sponsors, and I get to put some emojis under it and give you a high five. It really creates that uh, esprit de corpse where people are feeling like, hey, we're all in this together. So mm -hmm. another great uh, aspect of the way we pick founders is looking for perspective and looking for building a great product. And my gosh, you have both of those. So it's just delightful to watch you do this. Thank you. Uh, but one thing that has been challenging for you is you're a solo founder. Yes. So how has that process been for you fundraising, building the product? And maybe sometimes there are investors who have a bias against solo founders. How's that? Has that become an issue for you? And, and how are you working through that? Yes, it's certainly it has been challenging. And you know, as as you as you talked about at the beginning of the pod, um, fundraising is a, a full time job. It's very very time time consuming. You're taking a lot of meetings, and as a solo founder, um, you know you only have so much time and also energy and mental effort that you can assign to any given day. So you know, I'm doing the the marketing, the product development, the coding, um, taking the investor meetings. Uh, it it was definitely very challenging for me um the way that i approached it though was to to take less meetings so mm. i was very very sort of selective in terms of who i was reaching out to in fact i i actually didn't do that much outreach i made sure that most of the meetings that i took with investors were through an introduction Got so it. There, there were, you know, with, with the launch accelerator, we were pitching to investors every week and I, and I definitely got several meetings through that process. Um, but I'd also ask for introductions and, um, the, the fundraising that I've done at the moment, we're raising a 650k round. Uh, we have a lead investor, Black Sheep Capital from Australia. So I'm Fantastic. really excited to have an Australian investor and also, um, work with yourself and the launch team to yeah. hopefully fill out the rest of the round. So we've got a US investor and an Australian investor. But Perfect. In, in order to get that meeting and in order to get um, you know, that first check-in, I, I was pretty selective in terms of who I met with. I wanted to make sure that the investor understood the power of the brand because Llama Life is really, you know, it's a productivity tool. It's a SaaS uh, business, but it is sitting under this brand this marketing brand of, of llama life and as the product starts to expand you can start to have different verticals within that different revenue streams uh similar to what calm has done calm.com mm. i'm a huge fan i know that you're an early Me too. early investor <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, i mean people don't realize this i get a lot of credit for the uber investment but i owned a fraction of one percent of uber like a very tiny fraction yeah with calm we own five percent so even though it's much smaller we own a much larger percent uh, the the com the com investment will generate more cash than in fact my Uber investment at this point, um, and just what a great company! Yeah. And what they've done is fantastic, you know, because they've really leveraged the power of the brand. Like when you think about um, meditation apps, and I see this huge parallel with productivity apps as well. Everybody always says to me, and the investors gave this feedback as well, is that it's such a crowded space. You know, what are you doing um, to be differentiated? 
And I always use this parallel of meditation apps because you could say that a meditation app, um, you know, at its core is maybe just a list of MP3s categorized, mm. right, into different things. And I would say, well, okay, well, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, you know, what has Calm done to differentiate itself amongst a sea of meditation apps in the app store? And they obviously have a great product. They have great content, mm. but they've also got a great brand. And that's what mm. I see with Llama Life. You know, it yeah. is a tool on one hand, but it is also a great brand that we're building. And yeah. I was really looking for investors that understood that and got behind that and could see the potential of branding and mm. Black Sheep Capital understood that and you guys under understand that. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited. The brand to, uh, matters. And, you know, it's like very easy. People will dismiss a brand and say, how yeah. is this defensible? And, and brand is defensible. I mean, if you look mm. at a brand like Porsche uh, or Tesla, just taking the car category or Mercedes, these brands mm -hmm. evoke something. BMW, the driving machine, Volvo, safety, Tesla, technology, self-driving, you know, Mercedes is a driving, you know, like the precision of it and the craftsmanship. And uh, Calm, you're right, has an aesthetic. Robin Hood has an aesthetic that means mm -hmm. something to people and makes them loyal to it. And for people who don't know, um, we like to invest in the companies. We like for them to learn how to fish when they do catch some fish and as an investors and they get to 30, 40, 50% of their round closed, we will very often just take the other half of the round. And so in your case, my understanding from my team is that you got halfway there and we're going to syndicate and do the other half. So we, yep. we could very easily just syndicate every company that graduates from the accelerator, but we also want to challenge our founders, hey, to go find some other investors besides us and wow them and prove that you can set a valuation and you can, you can wow that because that is such a key piece. And I'm so happy that you did that with a with an investor down under because you do have these great firms. Was it Blackbird is one, mm -hmm. um, the one you yep. mentioned. There's like three or four that have really dominated down there. What are the three or four? Yep. Um, so you've got Blackbird, you've got Airtree, you've got uh, Tidal Ventures. Tidal, and, yeah. Yep. Black Sheep Capital is um, Black Sheep. the, yeah. So it's, it's absolutely like, and, and we just love the Australian founders because they're dogged, they're resilient. And they want to win. And, and you fall into that category. We see in Melanie from Canva and Atlassian team, so many great companies down there. The entrepreneurs in Australia are just at the top of our list in terms of uh, who we want to be in business with. So many great founders down there. I don't know what you guys are putting in the water or in the meat pies, but uh, <laughs> man, yep. I just am absolutely enamored with Australian founders. They just work so hard. Y'all work really hard and you're focused on winning. And it's just such a great country. I love spending time there. I've been there four or five times in my life. And uh, it's just one of my favorite destinations in the world. And it's just the people are wonderful down there. And the entrepreneurs are second to none. I put, I put the entrepreneurs in Sweden, Australia, the United States, just all in that same category as just unstoppable. And, and they all share that obsession with customers and, and making just beautiful products. I see that in Sweden all the time. And the Nordics, I see it in Australia. Whether it's Sydney or Melbourne, both cities uh, have equally. The Melbourne people have a little more chip. I will say that <laughs> Sydney Sydney people are delightful. <laughs> I'm not going to start too big of a debate here, but you, the ones from Melbourne got a little bit of edge to them. <laughs> yeah, I have to agree. <laughs> I have to agree, but I love them both. It's like Boston and New York to me. I love them both, mm. but uh, we're very happy to be in business with them. Very proud of the. Uh, the doggedness you've had and and it, it hasn't you. been easy because you're in a crowded field and you're a solo founder but but you got mm -hmm. it done 
and the best is yet to come multiplayer mode. Oh, it's going to be so incredible. And that's really when you think about it, as we wrap here, uh, my best advice to investors out there is you, you look at that first year or two of the progress the founder made. And if they made great product and they got that initial traction, just in your mind, allow yourself to say, what if they 10 exit? And then what if they 10 exit again? And, and you have 700 customers, I believe now paying for the product. Is that right? Yeah, 700 paying customers total. Um, last month, uh, November did 2,400 in revenue. So Fantastic. Still early days, but it's, um, yeah, it's definitely picking up growing 30% month on month in terms of MRR. You know, when I see companies growing over 10%, to me, it's not an accident. Once you get past 10% a month, it's not an accident. Of course, we'll look at the churn and, and we got to look at the engagement. But when you break that 10% growth a month, something's going fabulously right. And so I am super excited for you and all the other uh, cohorts here. Uh, if you want to spend 16 weeks with me and my team meeting all these great investors, uh, you can email Jackie at launch.co directly. She is the managing director of the program. She does 90% of the work. I take 100% of the credit, as it were. I'm given 100% of the credit, but shout out to Jackie for, for, you know, really finding and selecting these great companies. And I am absolutely delighted. I love being early in these companies and watching them grow and, and, and really trying to be as helpful as I can to them. Our goal is always to be your first and best investor. And so um, we work really hard at that at launch. And we, we want to, we sincerely want to be early on your cap table. And we want to be there with you when you ring the bell when you go public, uh, which I'm certain everybody will. And if not, it doesn't work out. We'll invest in your next company because eventually, uh, these dogged founders are going to do it. Uh, thank you so much to everybody. And again, sincerely, Jackie, you are amazing for just what you've done with this program. All right. It's time for another segment of OK Boomer. Rachel is reporting. How are you doing, Rachel? Doing great. How are you? What do we have for the audience today in our segment, OK Boomer, which connects old Gen Xers and boomers to the next generation of Gen Z and millennials and how they look at the world? This week, I got to speak to Arafili Gunari. And a few weeks ago, she actually was recommended to me on Twitter after I asked people for the best Gen Z founder to come talk on This Week in Startup. So that was really cool that I got to connect with her that way. And she was just a pleasure to talk to. Okay, what does she do? And what do you talk about in this episode? What are we about to hear? She runs a Gen Z social media agency and has a newsletter called Digital Native. And she's also currently a student. She's getting her master's in strategic marketing at Imperial College in London. So she's wearing a ton of hats, doing a ton of stuff right now. Um, and even though she's going to school in London, She's actually Greek, so she has a really cool third culture background as well. Great. And you talk a little bit in the interview about being a digital nomad and young people working from anywhere they want in the world and not having a home base, but basically living out of a backpack and living the dream. Everybody dreams of having this epic life, then retiring and traveling the world. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is some Gen Zs and millennials are saying, well, with remote work, I'll just not sign a lease. I'll have a small amount of possessions and I'll work from anywhere and I'll get to see 10 countries a year. We got to talk about that. And she, I think, was very well spoken on the subject, especially because she's not only getting her master's degree right now, but she's running a company. And I think when you're studying in a different country and when you're working in a different country, those are two totally different things. I think it's very easy for a person my age to do a study abroad program. 
But to actually work abroad, I feel like is a lot more difficult. So seeing that she was able to do both um, was really incredible. And this past weekend, I also went to Art Basel and I met up with an old friend of mine that um, is currently, I think, next week going to Wait, Italy. you were at Art Basel as well and you didn't look me up? I was there. I would have invited you to a party. I texted you. Oh, I you texted did? It. Uh-huh. Oh, no. I, I can't believe you. I missed it. Oh, sorry. My bad then. All good. All good. I had my parties to go to too. But <laughs> So I got to meet with a friend at Art Basel that is also a digital nomad living out of a suitcase. I believe he's been doing that for about six months now. It sounded really cool. And I think that most Gen Zs at this point would prefer remote work because this is kind of just the work environment we've now grown up in um, over the past two years, which um, when I graduated, it was 2020, the pandemic just hit. And I think there's a really big split between people choosing to live in cheaper places or move in with their parents, which is what I did. And kind of like how you mentioned earlier, how um, in a previous podcast, you mentioned you see a lot of young people moving to really cheap areas. I live in Baltimore. It's obviously a lot cheaper to live in Baltimore than it would be in San Francisco. And I think on the other hand, there are also Gen Z's taking it a complete opposite approach than moving to cheaper costs of area, cheaper costs of living areas and moving back in with other family members who are doing this living out of a backpack experience. So it was really cool getting to talk to her about that. And the only issue I see is time zone. Like, uh, you know, that could work or not. I mean, if you're if you move to Europe, and you're working mm-hmm. for an American company, you basically are giving up every evening if your yeah. boss requires you to be online during the regular work hours, or you might be able to find I know with inside.com, I'm always looking for editors who are in different time zones to do early morning coverage or late night coverage. So it could also be an opportunity if you're a developer, and the people in California can hand stuff off to you. Um, and, and you move the ball forward for when they get to work the next day, that can also be a benefit. So I think being yeah. honest with employers of what time zone you're in could actually create opportunities. All right, let's play the interview. And if anybody has ideas for the OK Boomer segment, helping translate trends that we're seeing young people do to the to the older generations, you can just email producers at thisweekinstartups.com. Let's roll the tape. Well, thank you so much, Yerophili Grunery, for being on this episode of OK Boomer. The reason I found you was actually through Twitter. I tweeted out and asked a bunch of people who are the smartest to the coolest Gen Zs to talk to, and you were recommended a lot. So you obviously have an incredible network that likes you. So for those of you who don't know, your affiliate is the founder and CEO of the Z-Link, and that's the first Gen Z-led social media agency that helps brands market to this generation. And she's also the head of social media at the California-based company Safety Wing. And she's the founder of the Gen Z Club community. And on top of all of that, she's also a full-time master's student at the Imperial College London. So like I said, you were the most recommended founder when I tweeted out that I wanted to talk to young people. And besides stalking your Twitter, to be honest, I only read a <laughs> Business Insider article about your day, and it was pretty impressive. So you're an international founder. That's what I want to talk to you about, because it sounds like you have a ton on your plate, and you're able to balance that even with having kind of a crazy time difference between the states and where you go to school over in England. So I guess, yeah, to start off, let's talk about being an international founder. And do you think it's easier being a Gen Z international founder than it is with other ages? I feel like my peers are so chronically online all the time that we are kind of put at such a good advantage of being international founders and online founders at that. What's your experience? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that because... We grew up in such a like an an online environment, you know, we're the first generation of digital natives. It's 
it's very different than any previous generation. And besides just being like more immersed in the internet, that also means that we're able to work a lot more like without borders and to not see the importance of being somewhere physically as much as previous generations, just because we're so used to like having a lot more possibilities. Yeah. So for me, it's, you know, I've never known another way of being a founder, basically, or I've never considered being a founder in a way that's not like remote and international, because I feel like it would only impose limits on my work that basically have no reason to be there. So it's a, it's a great time to be a founder. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because Jason is the author of a book. It's called Angel. Everybody at This Week in Startups and at launch has read his book. And he famously said in one of the chapters that basically founders have to be based in San Francisco. They have to be based in the Valley. And since that book came out and since the pandemic hit and we've been spread like all over the globe, including his own team, um, he's been like, you know what? Maybe that's something we can rethink. Do you think that like SF and Silicon Valley startups are a thing of the past? Or do you think this is just a lull in time and eventually we're all going to go back to Silicon Valley? Hmm, that's a great question. I am not of like of one opinion versus the other. I think it will be a kind of a balance of both because while I am an international founder myself, um, the the company I work at as head of social media in California is, you know, based in Silicon Valley, although it's also fully remote. So it's a sort of thing where it was founded there, it was a YC company, but the founders are not there. And most of the team is like made of digital nomads. Mm -hmm. So where I can definitely see the benefits of being based in SF as a founder, I don't think it's going to be a necessity in the future, but it definitely will still give you some more opportunities and like, you know, a very strong network to be there as a founder, just because of you know, all of the people that you get to meet and all of the things that you get to be even more involved in, in comparison to if you were just kind of like doing everything online and remotely. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, I really don't think that, you know, this would be that this would be the kind of thing that will develop to be a necessity for founders around the world. I think we're moving towards an age where no matter where you are, it's easier to be a founder anywhere and you can still access the kind of SF-based resources and network online. I completely agree with you. In fact, I've been pretty passionate about the idea of becoming a digital nomad myself, probably since college before the pandemic hit, just because I've noticed, like you've said, um, just the rise of international teams. I don't think necessarily, I think the, the pandemic probably did inspire a lot more people to become international digital nomads, but I definitely think that it was on a rise anyway before that even happened. In fact, I started reading your newsletter called Digital Native, and I think it's really interesting how you talk about just working in different places. And can you explain to everyone what it really means to be a digital native? For me, it means being a person who just grew up with the possibilities of the internet around you and who's so used to this world and is able to take advantage of the internet in its best ways and also mm -hmm. just you know recognize the limits that we should place in our use of like the online world and um at the same time i think it's also being a type of person who is comfortable like being anywhere kind of being like more of a digital nomad if that makes sense but for me the the meaning of being a digital native i think lies more in being like a Gen Z who grew up learning about everything that the internet can offer you and how to take advantage of it to create your own opportunities and learn and kind of like nourish your interests and everything. Do you have any practical advice for people that are aspiring to become digital nomads? 
Any practical advice? Okay, that's a good question. I'd say one thing is make sure that you have connections in as many places as possible. Because I think that's, you know, if you have kind of a global network, whether you you gained that through social media or like through your personal branding and connecting with other people in that way. It's something that is truly invaluable if you travel a lot and have no like solid base. Yeah. And it's also what will enable you to be working with amazing people if you are based in a remote location and still want to have access to the talent and the network that's spread all around the world. That's awesome that you mentioned being a part of a network because you're actually, I think every single person that I've talked to on OK Boomer thus far has had their own kind of community that they're building, whether it was, you know, Megan with her Gen Z VC um, group on Slack or the virus with Emily Herrera. Um, that, that phrase of just community building, I feel like is incredibly important to our generation. It seems like every single person I talk to that is really a, a, a game changer in our generation is trying to help others build those networks because networking is something I think that used to hold a lot of people back, especially when we were so confined to certain cities like London, San Francisco, Berlin had, I know, had a really good tech scene, but there, there were, I feel like, really pockets where you could find great, awesome founders that had amazing networks. And now our generation, I feel like, is thro- throwing that all out the window and really capitalizing on be- being phenomenal community builders. Do you have any tips about making those connections and building community for others? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something I'm very passionate about because it is a huge part of the work we do at the Z-Link. Like, I very strongly believe that, you know, the brands that are the best with Gen Z are the ones that are community driven at the core and, you know, rely more on like organic, social and building a community of of people that really understand your brand. And that doesn't only go for brands, but, you know, it's also super useful for like individuals and professionals. Mm -hmm. Like one of the most useful things I ever did for my career was have um, like kind of a, a strong personal brand on Twitter over any other place. That's how so many opportunities came to me. And, you know, without like it played such a big role. Yeah. So that's also a type of community building. And yeah. some tips I would have are just to, I know this sounds very general, but literally just start <laughs> and just take the first steps toward building a community, which is, you know, start communicating with your audience, start asking questions, starting conversations, putting out some type of content and offering whatever value you can offer. Because you can learn something from every person you meet, and that means including you. So, you know, you have something to teach that people might want to hear. You have different experiences, different beliefs. So putting out content and starting conversations that allows you to share that value and communicate with people in a way that is might be like informative to them or just more interesting and insightful, that leads to building an organic community and is super useful for brands and individuals and everyone. It's funny that you mentioned Twitter. So when I was in college, I don't necessarily thought I had an emphasis on Twitter in my mind at all. I feel like the social media, well, at least when I was in school, was Instagram, right? And I had a, I got a very lucky situation where I had a mentor that was in the VC space. And he was like, no, you need to start being more active on Twitter and like sharing your opinions online, which is really scary as like, I feel like we were grown ups to not do that. Like our parents, I, at least for me, were, no, were always like, don't share things on the internet and don't get in people's cars you don't know. And now here I am on Twitter, tweeting out things and getting in Ubers like all the time. And so I feel like Twitter is, uh, if I could give any advice to people that, especially that are Gen Z's starting out, you're right, just doing it. I think 
starting a Twitter account that I made away from like my personal account. I started making a Twitter account where obviously there's some personal things on there, but like that really is how I network. Like if somebody like is cool on Twitter, I feel like that's somebody I would meet in real life. And I wouldn't necessarily meet like people on Instagram in real life. I just like followed their, I don't know, Instagram account, like Instagram's for people who I know, Twitter's for people who I want to know. And then on that, I really, really wish I capitalized on just doing it. I wish I started putting more of myself on the internet earlier. And the thing, the way I would have done that is actually, I think through a Medium account, because when I graduated and became more interested in the startup and VC community, I noticed how many people were excellent writers. And I studied something in tech in college. So I was like, eh, like, who needs to know how to write? Like, if I know like what pretty UX UI is, like somebody will hire me for that. Now look, I obviously wasn't hired for that. But um, I totally agree with you just doing it and then taking the work that you've done in school and putting it out. So to show people that you're well articulated in your speech and in your writing. And Twitter is obviously a great place to do that. I think Medium is a great place to do that. But yeah, I really hope more of the Gen Z audience puts themselves on the internet earlier. And I think people are starting to do that. Maybe I was late in the game, but I see the generation above us, like the millennials, taking over Twitter. And I'm like, you know what? I think Gen Z people have a way, have a much more in tune um, sphere of things to understand like what people are buying. And I guess you're the second person actually spoke to that has kind of had like an agency built all the way around Gen Z. So we previously got to speak to Ziad Ahmed, as you guys probably know, if you're listening and you've listened to previous OK Boomer segments, he's the CEO and founder of Juve Consulting. So what makes you think that Gen Z is like so much better at like social media at branding? Like what makes us so much better? And why are there so many agencies focusing on Gen Z? To me, it's not necessarily that, you know, Gen Z marketers are better at branding than anyone else. I think it's more that, of course, branding is developing at the same time as we are. So people that are now becoming Gen Z designers and marketers are the ones that have like a very innate understanding of current trends, which is, of course, like natural for every generation. But uh, for us, our focus and the point of it is that we show brands how to market to this generation from our own perspective, considering everyone on our team is a Gen Z marketer, designer, you know, Gen Z copywriters and everything. So compared to, you know, people that might try to market to Gen Z, but being millennial marketers or older, um, I think what drove most of our clients to us from the beginning was that, you know, they're trying to target an audience and we are that audience and we are also marketers. <laughs> so it just works extra well. But um, of course, Gen Z audiences have also grown to have more of a liking to branding and aesthetics and content that is very current and very trendy and has like, you know, a special kind of like modern and bold aesthetic. And for all those reasons, you know, it takes also a Gen Z team to properly help a brand craft that. So I know you have some very corporate clients. But have you worked for anyone in a corporate setting outside of being a founder? Like, what were you doing before this agency? So, yeah, I worked at many different companies alongside my studies. So I'm 22 now. I started working when I was 17. And I worked at business incubators. I worked at, like, 
museums and I worked at the European Parliament and the Greek government and just a bunch of different organizations all on digital marketing and social media. I also worked a bit in the film industry and the art industry and all of that was like, <laughs> I know it's, it's a lot, but I was always doing it alongside my studies. And all of that was, um, you know, in digital strategy and digital marketing. And um, none of these were like, a, you know, huge corporate companies. I guess they were more like organizations, like I was in kind of like government organizations and institutions, but it's pretty similar. And uh, in all of those places, you know, the usually they would hire me because they were like, okay, you're young, you know, social media, and you have experience in marketing. So help us do something that actually like appeals to young people like you. Um, so to me, that was like the first sign that I was like, okay, I need to be doing this on on a bigger scale. <laughs> I see how many hats you're wearing in so many different fields. And it's interesting you went from government to a startup. I think that is very cool. But I also see so many Gen Zs have side hustles. I feel like you can't talk to a single person in our generation without having a similar life to yours where we do so many things. Do you think that this is going to be something that is incre like increasingly normal? Like, will every Gen Z, as we progress in life, have this side hustle? Or do you think that this is just maybe the world of startups in this echo chamber of Twitter that I'm in, where I see all these successful Forbes 30 under 30 people, right? Like yourself, like stretching the limits. Like, is this something you think everyone's doing, having side hustles and creating companies? That's a great question. I think it's actually expanding beyond that echo chamber. Although okay. I really see what you mean that it could just be, you know, us being so immersed <laughs> in startup Twitter. <laughs> being like, yeah, everyone's doing this. Yeah. But I'm thinking of people I know who have nothing to do with the startup and VC world that are also kind of subconsciously starting projects that end up turning into their own side hustles and I definitely think it's the kind of thing that is increasing right now. And it's also the type of thing where, you know, I have friends that are more interested in working in the corporate world, um, but they kind of look down on the huge companies that don't allow you to have a side hustle or like your own startup on the side of working there. Because that just seems like a non-Gen Z friendly approach, like a non-entrepreneurial way to work, you know? So companies that are encouraging side hustles and are encouraging a more entrepreneurial mindset, I think, are definitely going to do better with our generation as employers as well in the future. So is the shift to having these side hustles and being digital nomads like away from corporate? Do you think this is just young people being adventurous or is this like a long-term shift that you think is happening? Interesting. I don't know. I think I'm a bit biased because I'm very like... Since I, I started this more remote and entrepreneurial career, um, after all of the, the things I used to do in the past, I have gotten to really find all the benefits that it has compared to corporate jobs, like indispensable to my future. Like, I don't think I could go back to a physical job and a job that doesn't allow me to have a side hustle or, yeah. you know, take time to do things like that. So if that equals corporate, then I think we are <laughs> shifting away from that. But I think yeah. that's, you know, too big of a generalization because also starting out in corporate for our generation is usually a great way to gain some exp experience that you can la later use to become a great founder if you're interested in that kind of thing. So there are so many paths to, to achieving what you want. So I, I think it's very hard to say. I think it's so funny. Whenever I think of corporate, I interned one summer in corporate and that was like enough for me, right? I 
interned and I was like, you know what? I'm 110%. I'm good. Like this was enough for me. I'll, yeah. I'll go away. And I used to think like when I graduated going to a startup and having no people know what company I was joining, I used to kind of not self-conscious about it, but I was like, oh no, like people don't know like what the company name is. Like what's that going to say about my resume? Like if I go to an, the next company, like it doesn't, it's very difficult. Like this doesn't hold merit. And now I think, so I graduated 2020 when the pandemic hit. And it's so funny because when I knew that I was going into the venture capital startup podcasting community, I think it was just 2020, 2020 just hit, right? So it was January by the time I realized I want to do a fellowship in VC. But the pandemic didn't hit yet. And I think like between the time that I signed and like by the time I graduated, a lot more of my friends shifted to more of like the smaller businesses. Um, startup world, just because of how flexible your hours are, the ability to have a side hustle, the ability to wear so many different hats and learn more than just an Excel sheet, honestly, exactly, you know, and it provides so much help. And it's, I don't know what the world's going to look like in 20 years from now because of it. And do you what do you think the world is going to look like in terms of working 20 years from now? I think, you know, companies of all sizes are going to have to adapt to Gen Z and the workplace, which sounds obvious, but we're a very aware generation in terms of the things that we can have in some jobs versus in others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people that are super talented in our generation and might be getting offers from the corporate world might be very aware of the fact that in startups, you know, they can have a lot more flexibility and a much better work-life balance and like um, life standards in general. Uh, so inevitably, I think corporate is going to have to adapt to that and learn to to offer things to Gen Z employees that reflect that better standard of life that you can have in so many other ways of working. Because you know, there are so many opportunities out there in the startup world that are amazing for our generation in terms of how much you can learn, what the culture is like at these companies and yeah. the people you're going to meet and the responsibility that you'll be able to take on at a much, much earlier stage. For sure. That it, uh, even if, you know, most people don't know the name of that company, the what you'll be getting out of it will be kind of invaluable. I think we also are valuing our time more than we are valuing sometimes the corporate paycheck. And I think sometimes when I see like, especially in big tech, I was determined for some reason, my senior year, I entered my junior year in corporate in the finance industry. And I was like, I didn't like this. So the way to go is I should stay in corporate, but I should move over to tech. Looking back on it now, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know why I thought like moving over at, like vertically, um, excuse me, horizontally like that, if I necessarily would have liked it just because it was in a different industry. But I felt like, you know what, I know it will pay me well after college. And with how expensive college is in America, that seems like a great output. And the more and more I think about it, it's like, what do I value more? My time and the learning experience that I'll be getting or the golden handcuffs that I would inevitably be in if I did go to corporate. And I think more and more Gen Zs are really starting to see how valuable our time is. And I don't think the generations before that necessarily got that. I think it was like hustle culture and very like, I don't know, like grind. And I think our generation is like, wait a minute, like we want to do stuff too. And Jason always jokes. He's like, yeah, you can't be, a, uh, he made a joke. It was something to do with like, oh yeah, I don't want you being part-time and like going to Coachella or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, it's so funny because that's totally something as a Gen Z, I'd be like, oh yeah, like well, how many hours do I have to work here? And like, will I be able to have like a life to my own? Because- You know, which sounds crazy, but it's so obvious. <laughs> I mean- I know, right? 
I just want to say on that, uh, as a side note to what you said, you know, to kind of valuing your time more than like the corporate paycheck and mm -hmm. all of that kind of dilemma. It's also a big myth among Gen Z and especially among older generations that you can't have both in the startup world. That's so true. Which now, you know, there are startups that will pay six figures for someone who has their own entrepreneurial experience and has built up experience in their field while allowing you to work remotely and allowing you to be flexible and have work-life balance, that this is so possible. And there are tons of opportunities. It's just that we're not exposed to them. Like, you know, I'm still you just in have education. To look for them. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm still in university now and all I see around me is just like consulting corporate. Like yeah. that's, you know, the only career path. Especially, I mean, like you said you're at Imperial, correct? Yeah. So that's got to be a really interesting place to also be a founder. Are you, are you business? Are you doing an MBA? Yeah, I'm in the business school. So I'm doing wow. a strategic marketing master's. That's so for people not who don't know what Imperial College um, is, I'll, I can let you take this, but it is a very <laughs> good university with a really good uh, business program. So that's awesome that you are not only being a founder, but also getting an MBA. I see a lot of people that not an MBA, just to clarify, but like a business master's. It's like a it's a master's in strategic marketing. They have a lot of business related masters and they also yeah. have like one MBA program. So you can cool. do any of those like within the business school. That's awesome. Well, that's so cool to hear. I guess this is my final question. I want to know what are your tips for other young founders? Of course. So, um, I know this sounds like very lean startup of me, but uh, <laughs> uh, definitely like don't overthink and spend like three years building your product before launching can be such a big mistake in most cases. Again, like not want to generalize because there are exceptions. If you have an idea, just like go for it, start putting out content, see the demand, meet people that can help and just like start building. And also if you can build in public and create an early community that can be so valuable. You know, use TikTok, just try to show the world your product organically and build a community before it launches. And there are startups that can succeed just because of that and because of that early traction, which is just a great way to go. Awesome. I think that is incredible advice. Well, thank you so much for being on. Can you let people know where they can find you over on Twitter? Of course. So thank you so much as well. And uh, on Twitter, my username is Marauders. And then, you know, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, all of that. Very happy to connect. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk to Jason about our conversation. Of course. Thank you so much.